Welcome home, at home, Lyndon Drew Scott. Thank you for joining us, everybody. It's another exciting everybody. round. I'm going to make this like a like an action, like a, a fighting two. video game. Round one, fight. Round two, make love. Oh, I like <laughs> this game. This is great. <laughs> we just finished watching uh, a poop, not a poop video, but. So basically, um, and he said their it, mom sent mm-hmm. us a photo and our nephew, he's on the toilet. So he's four. He was calling. He said, come look at my poop. It's, it's so long and cool. Yeah. I've never he in said, my life heard massive. anybody explain it's of their poop being poop. cool. <laughs> and he was so fascinated. And then the six year old comes running in. Like, what is it? What is it? And he's like, come look at my poop. <laughs> and the whole time he's, he's still sitting on the toilet. And he's sort of like leaning over to show him behind uh, on the toilet. I'm like, oh my hey, gosh. It's it's a masterpiece. You know, <laughs> and I like the whole time your sister's just like, flush the toilet already <laughs> while she's filming it. If you ever burst in on me in the bathroom and you start filming me pooping. Oh, gross. I would never. I have a philosophy I want to share. So Linda and I try and eat very healthy and we eat very clean. And we're actually, we've been vegetarian now for about nine to 10 months it's, it's, yes, it is. I've, well, I'm listening. I will say that we do have fish once in a while. Over the years, while I try and eat healthy and then I'll slip into, you know, junk food and stuff from time to time, then back to healthy, then into fast food, back to healthy. I find it's like a cruel joke that the world plays on us because the healthier I eat, the stinkier my movements become. So the realer the, the food, the realer the poop. Well, no, but the, you would think that if you ate healthy that your poop should smell like rose petals and rainbows. <laughs> but instead, when I eat junk food, things are more solid and less smelly. I don't understand yeah, that. Yeah, because you're, you're eating fake food. Yeah, You're like pooping out cardboard just, when you're to, eating. To me, yeah, then that would cut, cardboard cut, Ow. that would hurt. But I just think that's a cruel trick uh, or it's a cruel, cruel joke on us. We should be able to- It's a cruel poop summer. I actually, do you like the idea of- <laughs> Do you want to, uh, would you want to ever do it where you just take a pill and the pill has all of the nutrients nope. you need? Oh, oh, well, nutrients, yes. But I do enjoy eating. I, I love eating. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know you do. Uh, it's, I mean, I enjoy amazing tasting food, but think of all the time prepping meals and and then eating and several times a day when you could just like go like boop, like an astronaut. You just have a tiny little thing and it's your full meal. No, astronauts have great food. Do they? They, we've, we went to the, um, where did we go? Well, yeah, when we were in, when we were in Houston, Houston we went to And we, NASA. we had astronaut food and it was it w- delicious. It was delicious, but they have the little and packets and it yeah, was just like, pill. you open up the packet and it's, no, it's not a pill. But you open up the packet and it tastes like different things, even though it's just like a little cube. I, I, I kind of like the efficiency of that. I do. I guess it's like a multivitamin. I don't know, right? But then what do you do? Like, honey, I want to make you a gorgeous meal. And then you just put four cubes on the table. And as you eat it, you're like, oh. Four square meals a day. Roast potatoes <laughs> and carrots <laughs> and a cake. I don't know. I like it. I like the efficiency of that. Uh, yeah. I still, I do love real food though. Yeah. Food is life. How do you feel about, now that it's been so long that we've been eating vegetarian, how do you, how does your body feel in comparison to before or do you not notice a difference? I notice that I'm not as sluggish after I eat, but I do worry about, and this is my fault for not doing enough research. I, I do worry about, um, getting certain proteins and nutrients. Not that like I didn't enjoy eating meat before. Like if if I ever cooked for ourselves, I would never cook meat because I, I just get grossed out. Well, what I actually find is my stomach is less active overall because I, I've always had a gassy stomach. Um, oh, I have a voice memo recording his stomach's gassiness. We were watching, <laughs> we were watching a movie and my my head was on on Drew's stomach, and it started talking. It started singing. Well, I didn't know that so you took I, your phone and put the voice memo <laughs> on. And she starts recording my stomach. And then while she's laying on my stomach, she's like giggling and being weird. And I'm like, "What are you doing?" So and then funny. I saw her phone recording. But yeah, my stomach was loud, and it wasn't. It was. It was like it was talking. It was like, Wait, should I play it? Could you guys hear it if I play it? You can try, but I apologize for this. This has nothing to do with this episode. 
but everything to do with life. <laughs> this is relevant. You said this isn't relevant to our conversation this week, but it really is because Karamo is our guest this week and he is all about opening up and exposing every aspect of you, not hiding anything. So that's just me exposing my inner belly thoughts. Yeah, I think it's beautiful. <laughs> I feel like I got to know you better that day. Oh, really? <laughs> um, I really enjoyed our conversation this week with Karamo because the way he speaks to you, you, it's like he's looking into your soul and it's like he's opening himself up to really truly listen to you. And I love it when you're talking to somebody and you can see they're a great listener. Oh, sorry, I wasn't listening. I'm kidding. No, I, I agree. And um, after we chatted with Karamo, I just wanted to sit and be still and think about what he said because as he was saying it, I was getting so excited because I felt like- It resonates. Yeah. Yeah. Linda's <laughs> vibrating right now. So on this vibrating note, let's chat with Karamo. Okay, if ADT wasn't professional enough, now ADT installs Google Nest products with their smart home security systems because ADT believes the smarter the home, the safer the security. I mean, what are they going to do next? They're, they're going to start a country singing career. I would listen to a country band named ADT. Also, I like to know what's happening at our front door from virtually anywhere with my Google Nest doorbell. Just saying. Your Google Nest doorbell? I said our. He said my. Everybody check that. Yeah. All right. Well, I like to control my ADT smart devices like my lights, my locks. <laughs> my security system with Google Nest speakers and displays. And I like to say, hey, Google, to get started. Listen, I said ours. I'm all about ours, not mine. Help protect what matters most with all this plus 24-7 professional monitoring from ADT and a little help from Google. Visit ADT.com to see how ADT can help make your home smarter and safer. I can feel the love bouncing off these walls Shining through the windows Reflecting like a rainbow That's where we belong Yeah, it feels like home So what do you what do you find? What's uh, your home dynamic? What do you and your fiance while you're in isolation? What are you guys doing to pass the time? You, both your kids are not living with you, right? They've moved on to yeah, they live down the street um, in an apartment. So uh, up until four years ago, um, I lived in an apartment, and so when we I was finally able to buy a house, which in LA it's very very hard. You could be working in TV for many many years, and yeah. people will think you have a lot of money and you have literally just enough to make your bills. The apartment that I was living in with the kids, um, they've stayed in. And so then we got a house. So they're together there. That's but nice the that dynamic, they're so close. The dynamic at home is good, you know? What were you yeah. about to say, Linda? I'm sorry. I, I, I just said, um, it's so nice that they're so close, just down the street. So I haven't seen them in the pandemic because they're little shits. Um, <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> sorry. Whatever you want. Okay, cool. Um, because like they understand and we keep having clear conversations about like, Listen, it's not about you that you're not sick. It's about like the people you're coming across in contact with. And they're like, well, I'm just going to chill with like, you know, a friend. And then I'll go on their Instagram and they're so stupid. They're at like a little gathering of like seven to 10 or 15 friends. It's in a house. And I'm like, what are you doing? And they're like, no, 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 we're all safe. And I'm like, I just want to just strangle. So I, I actually haven't seen my children other than FaceTime in Seven weeks. Oh my god! And you look so happy. <laughs> I am. I'm, it's like refreshing. Oh my gosh! I, I would say, you know, first off, I don't understand how you, looking like you're 22, have a 20 year old and a 23 year old. I mean, um, it must be your skincare line. It, but, it is uh, my skincare line. Yeah. It um, mantle, uh, but no, no, no. Um, just quickly, the the way I became a father is an interesting one. The First and only girlfriend I had when I was um, 15. She was my best friend. We decided, hey, she knew I was gay. And I was like, you know, we both want to lose our virginity. And I don't, I feel safe with you. You feel safe. And so we decided to lose our virginity to each other. And 
Um, right after it was finished, I was like, so I love you, but we're never going to do that ever again. And, um, and so she moved away. And, you know, as you know, because I think we're about the same age. I'm 39. How old are you? 42. Okay, great. So we didn't have cell phones like this. We didn't have social media. So when she moved, I just, it was like, she's gone. Unless you had an address or a house phone, she was mm-hmm. gone. And um, about 10 years later, when I was done with college, I moved to LA. Um, I got a stack of papers on my doorstep for back child support for this kid that I didn't know about. And I thought it was a joke. You know, punk was big back then and I was on MTV's Real World. Yeah. So I thought we were punk in me. And I thought Ashton Kutcher was in my house and I thought me and Ashton Kutcher were going to fall in love. <laughs> <laughs> We've all thought that at some point. Yeah. <laughs> but it didn't, uh, it wasn't a joke. It was real. And um, she actually didn't come after me. She had applied for benefits for her child, for her and her children. And the state found me. And so all of a sudden mm-hmm. overnight, I became a father of a 10 year old. And then um, he was living in Texas where I grew up. I moved back to Texas to meet him. Didn't think I was going to get custody and then realized I'd missed 10 years and with her support, petitioned for custody. Mm-hmm. And then a year later, um, adopted his little brother because he was um, having some issues and because I worked in social services, they were going to pull him out of the house. And I was like, well, pull him with me for like, you know, while the things get figured out. And then all of a sudden I became a father of two overnight. And now they're 20 and 23. Wow. And that's how I became. So that's why I look young, but... It's because I was a fast-ass teenager. (laughs) (laughs) So you were working in social services. Was this before MTV? Yeah, it was. It was, um, well, I kind of was. So I got a job in South Central LA and um, um, working with um, um, underprivileged African-American Latino youth. And then there was a show on TV called Pimp My Ride. Y'all remember that? Mm -hmm. And so the organization I was working with, my kids were getting locked up. And so I went down to MTV to protest. Like I'm straight out of college. So I like did a PowerPoint presentation, like got a couple of the moms, got like one of the local news stations to come down. Like, I mean, like I was like thinking like, yo, I'm the man, I'm doing this. And I got there um, and some woman came out and was like, who did this? Who organized this? And I was like, me, fighting the man, get the show off of TV. It's a bad image for kids. You know, they're stealing from other people's cars because your show says it's good. And she was like, will you come back the next day? And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm about to make change. Literally went back the next day and they were like, this, we want to cast you on The Real World because you're gay and black and crazy. And... Um, <laughs> And I was like, hell yeah, literally quit my job two weeks later. Don't know what happened to those children. Don't know what happened to those mothers. Just young and irresponsible. And um, that's how I got on MTV. So I was working in it for a little bit and then got on MTV. And then, um, you know, had to get back into it after you realize reality television isn't a real job unless they're giving you multiple seasons. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, so, uh, that's one thing I, I have. We hear all the time. People think, "Oh, you're on TV," and 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 new talent that want to have a TV show. They're like, "I just want to get um, a show, just one season, make it rich, and then I'm off to my own thing." I'm like, "That ain't how it works." That's not how it works at no, all. You know what I mean? No. You need a multiple. I was, in the beginning, you know, I was making more money when I was right out of high school than I did when you know season one. You got to prove yourself, and then you continue after season one. Yeah. So, yeah, it's yeah. it's so real, and I'm glad you said that because. People look at us where we are now and they think, oh, season one, you're banking and all that stuff. And it's like, no, it's a journey. Like I was making more like you working in social services, which made nothing more than I made on on any reality show I did until I got Queer Eye. And then it was like, oh, you're getting a real salary and you're getting seasons and blah, 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 you know? Yeah. At such a young age when you were planning that that first protest, what in you drove you to do that? Like- you know, yeah. now it's, it doesn't seem easy now, but we have so many resources now and it's, it's, you know, normal to see. Yeah. But Easier back, for bigger reach as well. Yeah. Back yeah. then, what was it that drove you to, to push for something like that? Well, I mean, I grew up black and gay in the South to immigrant parents. And so I feel like I've always had to fight for what's right. Um, and then a, my friend group has always been very diverse. And when you have, you're growing up in Texas and you have your Jewish friend being called really horrible names by other white people. And I didn't understand that. Cause I was like, both y'all are white. What are y'all doing? And then like, you know, one of my best friends was Haitian and the other one was Asian. And then there people are making comments to them. And it was like, you get into this mentality very quickly that either you're going to accept it and allow it to affect your self-esteem negatively, or you're going to fight against it. 
And luckily, I learned that, you know, not only bringing attention to it, but really having solution steps is what's important. You know, it's one of the things that I think we're missing nowadays. Like, I love that young people want to get on social media and post about, you know, something that happens and, you know, bring attention and, you know, but then after a week, it's done and mm-hmm. you've forgotten about it and you've moved on and there's no real sustainable action steps. And I, that's why I don't think we see any change. So for me back then, doing the PowerPoint presentation, going to MTV was the first action step along of mm-hmm. six that I didn't accomplish because... I was young and fame got into the way, but um, it was very much like I have to make change because if I see something influencing these young black and brown boys, if I don't do something now, it's just going to continue on and on. Mm-hmm. And the, the first step in my mind was get it off the air. Yeah. Right. Yeah. How do you find when you see how much success you now have and how you've reached people and touched people and Uh, emotionally connected with people globally, when you travel around, what's the difference that you see from families in uh, overseas or families here uh, or down South? Um, Not a lot, to be honest with you. I mean, one of the things that I realized is that, you know, people are experiencing the same emotions and hardships and happinesses globally. Um, And out of our cast, I'm the one that people come to just talk about their emotions. So like when we're at events, people come up to my castmate, Jonathan, they're like, yes, honey, I want to dance with you, do my hair. They come up to me and they're like, my grandfather passed away. We're financially struggling. Um, And it's, it's, it's one of the things because of the show. And I realized that we're all dealing with the same stuff. You know, people are feeling um, scared. They're feeling alone. They're feeling ashamed. They're feeling happy. They're feeling inspired. They're feeling hopeful. And so that's why there's not that many feeling words. So if you can just tap into that, you can not, you can give a generic solution. You know, I I don't try not to, but you can give a solution that's going to inspire them because, you know, somebody in Japan, when we were there was dealing with the same things that I've seen people deal with, in you know here in america you know like one of the episodes she she was her name was yoko she was amazing and literally she talked about the fact that she felt like she wasn't worthy because she wasn't a good daughter Mm -hmm. and literally in season um five that's coming up i can't give away details but literally there's the exact same story Mm -hmm. of somebody being like i'm not as good as the older sibling and why like and it's this thing of like people comparing themselves and losing themselves and feeling down on themselves because they don't think they're as worthy as somebody else who's accomplished or done certain things. And so, you know, if you can just tap into it, you know, you realize that we're more alike than we are different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think it's beautiful when we were uh, reading up on you, the one point that I just couldn't stop thinking about was um, your, just your outlook on, I don't want to say coming out, Instead of calling it coming out, you should look at it as allowing people or inviting people into your life. Yeah. And I think that's just such a powerful and simple pivot of language yeah. that, you know, releases the burden of the person who has to do it or chooses to do it. Yeah. It's less you know, about this and it's more about this yeah, kind of a feeling. Yeah. Whether it's t- coming out with a secret or like a feeling, like you shouldn't have to come out. Like it's about inviting people in. And I thought that was really cool. Thank you. Yeah, I'm a big believer that there's small shifts in the way that we, um, or pivots, as you said, in the way that we share things or express ourselves, like really do have dramatic changes. When I worked in social social work, I worked at in here in LA at the LGBT Center, and my youth, I realized if I said one thing, it changed the way that they looked at it versus another way. So let me give you another example. Um, Obviously, you talked about letting people in because I do believe that's the process we're doing is that you're deciding who you want to let into your life. Mm -hmm. And you shouldn't feel pressure to do that with people who are strangers or people. And it doesn't make you ashamed of who you are. It gives you the power to decide who you want to let into the personal parts of your life. I appreciate you guys. I know you guys, but I don't know every aspect of your life. And as we get to know each other more, you'll let me in. And that's because you trust me and you love me. Um, and that's okay. It doesn't mean you're ashamed of those parts. Yeah. Um, but another shift in language that I say to the kids, and I just, this is another example, is um, you know, when someone says, um, how old are you? I usually ask them, what chapter in your life are you? Mm. And the reason I say that is because when you think about age as chapters, and you think about chapters as a book, it makes you really realize that if this was the final chapter, how is this going to be written? 
Am I doing things that make me happy? Am I trying new things? Because when we talk about age, age for us, a lot of people seems very, we're afraid to talk about death, first of all. And so it seems like, oh, it's, it's, it's whenever, it's coming, you know, it's just another moment. But when you think about a book and a chapter, you know that book has a close. And if you think about each chapter, you want to know what are you going to look back and read on? Is it going to be exciting for you? And I realized when I said that to the kids, had a little shift in language. All of a sudden, they're like, oh, my gosh, what do I want to write in this chapter? It just became a different way of approaching their lives versus me saying, how old are you now? And we all get that question that's so generic. And we're like, oh, I'm 12, I'm 13, I'm 45, I'm 42, whatever. And you just move on with it instead of realizing that what you're doing actually now is writing a new chapter. And you should be figuring out how much stuff you want to do in this chapter that's going to make you happy and bring you joy. And by the way, you're saying how you like the idea of people, you know, letting people in when you're comfortable with them, when you know more about them, when you love them. Linda must be like the epitome of what you're looking for in somebody because she lets everybody in so deep. And and within one time of meeting somebody, she will say, love you. Oh, uh, yeah. so she's I, sweet. I actually like that. conversation, she's going to say, bye, I love you. Yeah. I will I, say it back. I don't okay, worry. Thank you. Done. I mean, that that's really sweet, but... I mean, I, I do find that I can connect easily with people, but I found that lately I've been learning to be more protective of like mm. of how much I share and what I choose to share. Um, I think because people who know me know me as being like super happy and, and positive and bright all the time. Sometimes I find that is a burden to upkeep and I'm not allowed to show feelings that are contrary to that. So Amen. I've been trying to be more protective of just how, how I feel, how much I feel and like who I share it with. Well, and also with the relationships, you know, some people that you let in can be very yeah, exhausting. And it's draining. And, and draining very, yeah. and very, and it can bring out a more negative energy. And yeah, yeah. but I, I think the more you understand of yourself, like, you know, I don't choose to share my current challenge with a certain someone, you come to understand it in someone else as well. Like if someone's having a shitty day, and you may think like, oh, that person's acting like a dick. Maybe, you know, that's fine. Cause like you yeah. have those days too. Yeah. Like it's no big deal. I think that's such a good lesson, especially like right now in like quarantine time and all this stuff and just period in life. Like you have to be protective of your feelings without losing vulnerability. But also I think there's something about people who are always joyful and people who are always the strong ones that you can lean on. People forget that they have a myriad of feelings and emotions as well. And we don't check up on them and say, hey, can I create a space for you today? Because what happens is that people get into a pattern of feeling like, oh, well, you're the strong one, so I can come to you when I'm weak. Mm-hmm. And not realizing that that's unfair and it's mm-hmm. selfish. And, um, and, and it's part of our training as a culture, to be honest with you. It's, you know, as children, you're told that someone will be there to listen to all your problems and you know, it starts with their parents, which they should be, but it takes a long time for kids to realize their parents are adults with their own problems and everything mm-hmm. else. It then happens in school where you're like, oh, I have a problem. Teacher solves it. Principal solves it. Someone solves it for me. And so it, it, it creates these boundaries within our minds that assumes that if I have a problem, there will always be somebody who I can dump on. And dumping is such an unhealthy thing. And I think as a culture, we need to restructure that. I, I've always mm-hmm. thought like when we go back to school, life skills should be taught in a mm-hmm. different way. Like, because totally. what we should be teaching kids at a very early age is, um, you know, when you your parents do something for you, you ask your parents, how are you? Because right now we're not in a space for that. There's no time for you to ask a teacher how they're doing because you're just mm-hmm. like, this is your job to teach me. And I think if we could like, change our culture, it would allow people to be, to see people in a different light and understand that they, they are strong, but they're also weak. They're happy, but they can also be sad and allows people to realize like, oh, I shouldn't just come to you and dump because I'm feeling this way. It allows them to understand there's more of a breadth of an experience to have with someone. So I love that. I love that outlook too. You know, um, especially when you think teachers, Think of how many students uh, a high school teacher has that comes through their their different classes and there's always something happening and then there's, you know, the pressure from the school board and everything else, all the pressure that are on teachers, a lot of them underpaid as well. And then you think the kids are always just thinking they're the ones that will solve the problem or deal with something. That's a lot of abuse that they can take throughout their, their career. 
So um, I, I love that idea of checking in with them to say to your teachers, hey, how are you? Are you, doing, are you doing okay? Can I help you with anything? Or I have to tell you the story. There was a teacher that I had in the um, ninth grade who was the coolest guy ever. He was our theater teacher. And um, I remember um, one day I was at my, this is a true story. It was like wild to me. My family had ordered pizza and my theater teacher came to the door and delivered my pizza. And I opened the door and I was like, what, what, what are you doing? Like, why are you ordering pizza? And it was the first time that I realized it changed my whole perspective in going through high school. And this is no joke. If you ever talk to any of my teachers, people used to call me like a teacher's pet because I used to say to teachers, like, is there anything I can do for you? Mm. Because I was just so aware that like, oh, this is not your only life. And like my issues are not your only issues. You have your own children, your own husband, your own families, your own financial stuff. And seeing that teacher at my doorstep in a Domino's outfit it didn't make me, I wasn't like saying like, oh my gosh, it, you should be ashamed that you're you know, working because he was surviving. He did what he needed to do. Yeah. But it made me realize, oh, he's a person outside of this. And like, wow, I like his day doesn't stop when my day stops. Mm. Because when that bell rings, I thought we all were done. And yeah. you're yeah. still figuring out how to pay bills. And I think just having those perspectives just help. And um, it changed my perspective like dramatically. Uh-huh. That's actually a great experience to, yeah. to think of, of seeing. Well, I remember there were a few times when we were younger seeing our teachers outside of, you know, at the grocery store or. Yeah, you freak out. You're like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. What? You have friends? You have a social life? Yeah. I'll tell yeah. you one that was a little weird though. So um, this is, I don't think I've ever told anybody this. So when I was 16, there was the local strip club in, in where we lived. <laughs> and. I was tall and like a couple of our friends and friends and me we were tall. So we didn't look like we were 16. They thought we were older and I'm sure they didn't care. They were a strip club, but we were like, we got to go in there. This is like the coolest thing ever. We got to check this out because we're just immature 16 year olds. And so we walk in, try and act all confident and we go and and there's like a stage and there is someone dancing and we go and sit down by the stage and we're like, just act, act adult, act really old. <laughs> nobody was in there. Nobody gave a shit. Nobody even yeah. looked at us. And then I look over and one of our high school teachers was uh, sitting, it was lunchtime and they were sitting at the table next to us. And we were just like, this is too weird. We have to go. Oh yeah, we have to go right now. Did yeah. the high school teacher see you? I honestly can't remember uh, if they did. I know I never spoke to them about it. I will say one teacher that did really um, affect my life in a positive way Mr. Connor, so he was, now what grade would this have been? I think he, so in our, our high school, it was like a work at your own pace from grade nine to 12. Uh, it was a new system, a new school, and it was meant more like a college style where you had uh, work areas and then a testing center. And they was trying to be more of a transition for kids to college. And so the harder you work, the, the more you can, the faster you can get through your, your grades and your classes. Um, anyway, this one teacher, he was in the science area and Jonathan and me, we were little pranksters. We were always pranking teachers and students and stuff all the time. We weren't bad kids, but we were definitely, we had a lot of energy. Anyway, on a daily basis, Mr. Connor would have to discipline us. And every time he would be like, okay, guys, look, I know you're trying to have fun, but let's start fresh. As if nothing's ever happened, let's start again. And I remember thinking when I was grade nine, I'm like, what a loser. Like he's such a, like a, like he wants our, he wants our approval so bad that he just keeps forgiving us. And we were taking advantage of it when we were younger. But then as I got a little bit more mature, as we moved into grade 10 and into grade 11, then I realized he wasn't being some, some desperate guy for the attention of these students. He was trying to be supportive and not just come down on us and get after us just because, you know, we were a bit of trouble here and there. And in the end, in my grade 12 year, I ended up, um, long story short, but our counselors did not give me the right advice and I didn't have the credits I needed to get into my major in, in college. Well, Mr. Connor, this is three weeks before the government exams. Mr. Connor ended up doing a crash course for me. I needed physics and I needed to do the entire grade 12 course of physics and then challenge the government exam. I had to get an A in it in order to get into my faculty. And so for the three weeks prior, every uh, during school days, every evening, he studied with me for an extra couple of hours, oh. crash coursed it. I aced the uh, the government exam. I just squeaked in. I got like 86. And uh, and then I got into university. I got into college, all thanks to Mr. Connor, who I thought in the, in the beginning was not somebody that was of anything to write about. And in the end, I'm like, you're the reason I'm doing what I wanted to do. So thank oh, you. 
That's yeah. amazing. Isn't it great how you find those like people who you didn't even think were supposed to be there, who were like major players in your life that you were like, oh, F you, you're, an, you know, whatever. And then you're like, oh, you're here for a bigger purpose. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Which is awesome. That's yeah. a cool story. So tell me about growing up. You're from Texas. You're from Houston. Yeah. Um, we loved filming. We filmed down in Galveston and uh, I'm a big sports guy too. I know you are too. And yeah. I loved, uh, our friend is the GM of the Houston Rockets, Daryl Morey. And so I love checking out basketball down there too. What was your family dynamic growing up and, and what shaped you do you find the most? What sort of advice shaped you into who you are today? Um, first of all, if you ever want to just get me Rockets tickets from your friend, I'm not opposed to taking freebies. I know people are afraid to ask and I'm not. Uh, I, you know what? All right. How about you got to come with me? I'll take I will. you. I will. I will. Game. Yeah, totally. Um, life was good growing up. You know, I mean, it was um, my mother and father. Um, I'm the youngest. I have four older sisters. Um, they shielded me from a lot of stuff until I kind of got to 14. You know, so my father and mother came here from Jamaica and Cuba. They're, um, my father was abusive as hell, you know, so like I missed a lot of that. But it then shaped me in like how I, you know, would step up to, you know, protect people who were abused or whatever. Um, and then when my parents got divorced, when we were, when I was 15, going on 16, I moved to Florida with my dad. And my high school that I actually graduated from is Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, where the shooting happened. And, right. um, you know, so it just, it, it's a, you know, like it was good. I mean, I can't lie. There was a lot of turmoil just coming out as people say, but I had a good uh, group of friends around me, you know, and most of my challenges came from like the egotistical toxic crap that, you know, my father had because he grew up in, you know, Caribbean culture and was told like your son being gay is not okay. And like, it makes you less of a man. So it was a lot of that, but I surrounded myself with friends who I'm still friends with today and, you know, kind of made it through. So how old were you when you realized you were gay? Um, I I realized I was gay at five, six. Uh Yeah. And and part of that is because I I was over-sexualized, which I think we over-sexualize kids um, way too early. Um, It's something that I was conscious of when I became a dad of trying not to over-sexualize. There's a way to have conversations about educating your kids about sex, but I think we over-sexualize kids in ways that we don't even realize. Like, I remember something I used to get. I'm like you, Drew. I was, I've been this height, six, two and a half, since I was 15. Mm-hmm. And I've been the same kind of body size. I'm maybe a little bit skinnier, but I was always bigger. And um, and so I remember early on, people always come up to me and being like, how many girls you got? You know, how much, how much sex do you have? And you, you know, and it was like these questions that you ask little boys that you think is like, oh, we're connecting. We're, you know, we're seeing how, you know, what they are. But you're really just over-sexualizing a child before they need to be sexualized. Because now all of a sudden I felt like, Oh, I'm supposed to have multiple relationships. Oh, I'm supposed to be having sex. Oh, I'm supposed to be doing this and that. When those conversations wouldn't have happened if people mm-hmm. weren't sexualizing me. And so yeah. because of that, I remember thinking about sex, not my sexuality, but sex mm-hmm. and who I wanted to have sex with at such an early age because I was over-sexualized. And I w- so- I was very different from that in the sense that I was the most extremely awkward person around girls in high school. Um, yeah. I was not thinking about sex. I was just thinking about, will I have the courage to just ask them on a date? Which and, is a very uh, normal experience. That's a beautiful experience. You know what I, I mean? But I, like, I think, no, I'm just saying it was the toxic guys around me. You know, like my fathers and uncles from early on always asked me like, questions about sex. And wait, like- but, but you said for, at five or six, you realized you were gay. Yeah, because what would happen is that, so for instance, uncles would come around and they would say, oh, that's your little girlfriend, you know what I mean? Like, Mm. you're going to have, you know, like, they would ask me questions about like, oh, so you got a kiss yet? You kissing her yet? Mm. And so what happens is that because you're sexualizing me now, I then would go into my room and be like, at five and six, I remember this at kindergarten, me thinking like, well, I don't want to kiss her, but I do want to kiss him. Mm. So immediately it went from sex from being, you know, like just having conversations that they thought were harmless to me now thinking about sex when I shouldn't have been thinking about sex at, you know, five or six. So I didn't have the language to know I was gay. All I had was, oh, I don't want to kiss her. And everyone keeps telling me I should be kissing her. Mm. I want to kiss him, but they keep pressuring me to kiss her. 
and to hold her hand and to like putting us together in photos saying when you get married and when you have babies. And I'm like, why are you talking about babies to a baby? And yeah. so it made me realize that I wanted to be, I wanted men, but I didn't want girls. So that's how that kind of like was about. ADT now professionally installs Google Nest products with their smart home security systems because ADT believes the smarter the home, the safer the security. Help protect what matters most with 24-7 professional monitoring from ADT and a little help from Google. You said that very professionally. I try. (laughs) Visit ADT.com to see how ADT can help you make your home smarter and safer. I have a question for you because uh, yeah. I know you, you've worked so much in the LGBTQ community supporting as well. And it's something that I've always been curious about um, and, and obviously um, with the, the child ch- childcare working that you've done and everything too, we, we see a lot nowadays, a lot of people, they don't want to label their children. They don't want to label their children boy or girl. They don't want to stereotype them with pinks and blues, um, but also um, they're talking about letting the children decide who they are, um, what, uh, what they relate to, whether it's female or male. Do you find, um, when kids are a lot younger, just like you're saying, confusing them with the idea and sexualization of, um, kissing and and whatnot, do you find it can be confusing for little kids if you start to not explain to them anatomy or differences between boys and girls? Yeah, I think there's a way to discuss anatomy. And I think that's a healthy thing for parents to do early on, because I think that too often we get older, and especially girls that I, you know, have or are friends, they're not told about their bodies um, until later on in life. You know what I mean? Like, it's like the minute they start having their period is like when we're going to start talking about their bodies. And that by then, there should have already been conversations about your body and what your anatomy is. And there's ways to have that in a healthy conversation that's not sexualizing. I think when it comes to gender identity, I do believe that um, there's a space to talk to kids about what, how they're assigned at birth. So it's, you know, I, I, I sometimes feel like we get into a, and I'm going to, I get in trouble with this all the time, just to let you know. Um, I think we get into a space where we become a PC culture where we tell people don't put up blue or pink because you're now defining your child's gender. And I'm like, well, I mean, really, if I put up purple, it doesn't matter. Like it, the color doesn't define. So like, if someone wants to do that, it's fine because really what you should be teaching people is saying, as you're talking to your child about their anatomy, also be open to saying, um, how do you feel about your dad? Like giving them the space. Because mm-hmm. all trans youth I've ever talked to, by the time they're three, four, five, ironically, and this is hard for us to experience because we didn't go through it. So it's like when you think about being three and being like, I'm in the wrong body, mm-hmm. I don't understand that because I didn't, I didn't go through it. Yeah. Um, but, I, but it's the same thing when I tell people I knew I was gay at five, they're like, really? You knew so early. And I'm like, well, in my experience, I knew immediately this was not what I wanted, that this was what I wanted. Um, But I don't think that we should get so PC of getting into the space of like, you know, you can't put up pink and you can't put it blue and whatever the case may be. It's about helping parents to understand or helping families to understand that as you're talking about anatomy and as your child is growing, leave a space open for them to come to you and communicate honestly about what they're feeling. And I think you don't have to specify gender. It's about what I did with my kids, to be honest with you. I did this and we have a great relationship and I've had heard them talk about it, so I'm not just speaking for them, you know, now that they're older. But when they were younger, I would always say, hey, if there's something you want to share, I'm going to promise you two things. First of all, I'm not going to get mad because you're sharing with your honest feelings. And secondly, I'm not going to share your feelings with other people unless you give me permission. Mm-hmm. And it created this space where, you know, I was in a place where my kids can come to me and what we have in our house is they would say, um, on King and Prince, that's our little code for them to know like, Hey dad, what I'm about to say to you, I need to share. And I don't want you to share with anyone else. And I also don't want to get in trouble for what I'm sharing with, mm-hmm. because that's the fear that stops people. Yeah. And so if you can leave that space open for your kids, the gender conversation does not have to happen in the way you think it's going to happen, but it allows a space for your kid to say, hey, this is what I'm feeling. 
and for them to know you're not going to judge them and then they're not going to get in trouble for what they're feeling. And giving parents, teaching, teaching parents how to say, I appreciate you sharing your feelings with me and sharing what you're going through, but I need a little time to process the information and also to educate myself and I love you. And I think that's one of the biggest things that we don't teach parents and tell them that it's okay to say because they feel like in that moment they have to give an answer. And that's right. when they usually open their mouth and say the wrong thing. Right. But I don't totally. think, going back to that gender identity, I don't think that parents should have to stop giving up blues and pinks at you know birthday parties. I, I, I think it's stupid. I think just give your child the space to be honest is yeah. what yeah. families need. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the space that. to have that conversation. And yeah. I, I think on the point of um, getting in trouble or, or being PC, I think a lot of us struggle with that, especially now with social media. Anything you say, you know, can, can be criticized as supporting one way or another, um, which is good because it's it's just all conversation to be had and we all need to learn ways to say things more eloquently that's that's not offensive. But, but it is a learning curve. Like even after just reading your perspective on, rephrasing the term coming out, I feel like, oh shoot, a post I did last week for our um, our last guest, Caleb Marshall, he's gay and and we talked about his coming out process. But now I want to go back and rewrite that. But I think, you know, even though I feel guilty for saying what I said last week, I think it's beautiful that I now have the vocabulary to share it more eloquently and honestly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and I think, I appreciate that, but I think, you know, one of the things that I do hate about our culture right now, and I don't use the word hate, but I do hate that we're such a PC culture. And I don't think conversations on social media are constructive. I don't think, I mean, like I, we've gotten to this place where people can't express what they're feeling. And so we're not really having any real conversations. We're just bullying people in the corners. And I don't like that. I mean, mm-hmm. as someone who tries to help people communicate their feelings honestly, I think it's, it does such a disservice when it's like, you can't talk about your experience or your feelings around a topic that you didn't understand. Um, and I think we don't give people that opportunity. Like I, I worked in social services and I, you know, not to go back to the, you know, the gender identity, but like I work with parents who love their kids, but if you haven't lived an experience, it's hard for you to understand. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't make people transphobic. It makes them unaware of your experience and you have to give them time, first of all, to educate themselves. And you also have to give them time to grieve what they thought their life was going to be or what their family was going to be. And on social media, we don't give people those times and those space. And so really what happens is they just get bullied into a corner Mm -hmm. where now they're just saying something publicly because they're like, okay, I know now what to say. Mm -hmm. But does that really change their hearts or minds? I don't think so. You know what I mean? And I think like, we got to get people space to like say, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't yeah. like, you know, I, I don't get it. And be like, Hey, since you don't get it. And since you said something that offends me, are you open to me giving you some education so that you can learn and also checking myself and being like, it's okay if you don't agree with me on everything. Like mm-hmm. that's also something that's super okay. That all of a sudden in like 2020 and 2019, we don't have anymore. Like, it's like, Either you're all with me or you're against me. And I'm like, F off. Either I'm just a human being and you're a human being. That's really what's happening. It's like, you don't have to agree with everything I say. And that because you don't agree doesn't make you fundamentally a bad person. And I just wish we could get back to that. I, I agree. Uh, and we, we were more constructive conversations. Yeah. Sorry. No, no. My I little soapbox. I apologize. No, I, I like it. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're the same. And we, uh, you know, we were just... Um, talking about this before when it comes to, you know, how we all treat each other and it's the same with the environment. We were obviously very passionate about the environment and, and doing what we can to, to give back and support, uh, for, to give back to like sustainability and growth and everything and solar yeah. and, and renewables instead of fossil fuels. And one thing uh, that we learned from Dr. Jane is the fact of doing not attacking the other side. You don't want to attack the other side. You want to try and find a common ground where you can connect and communicate. And then hopefully they'll see from your passion and and from a a rapport that you've created, they'll understand your side and hopefully you can pull them over. And, uh, and I, that's what I, I truly love that sort of way of thinking because anytime you attack anybody, I know anytime someone comes at me, aggressively, my wall is up and I'm ready to fight. Oh, and so God, yeah. it's the same in any aspect of life, in any relationships and with any communication. Yeah, I yeah. think all of this really distills down to 
us needing to take the time to have conversations. Yeah, completely. And, and that's all it is because you you've seen. I don't know which company it was. I think it was a beer company that did this campaign where they brought people, two people together in, into a room, two people with very different backgrounds, religious and political beliefs. And you would think that they would butt heads, but they sat in a room with a beer for an hour and they talked and became friends. Seriously. Because they were given the time that. and space. Because this is the thing. The, the, there's two points I just want to make. But, you know, when you look at like when a, a brand or somebody does something bad, and they just remove the ad and apologize. All the people who saw that ad before and supported it don't understand why. They just feel like, oh, I'm being silenced. And so there's no education that's really happening. there. And so it's like, great, you took the ad off. And so I'm, I'm happy because I felt like the ad hurt me. But there's still a million people who are like, why did that ad get taken off? That don't have any education and who aren't getting coming up to you. And so... I, there needs to be new ways of saying, hey, the ad, like, we put the ad out and at the end of it, say, you know, we realized this is wrong because of this. Would love to have a conversation or something. I don't know what it is mm -hmm. yeah. because taking it off the air is just not going to help the conversation. And that's why we right. see things over and over again. And I experience this a lot because I always try to reach out to people who are different than me and see their side and have conversations. You all, like we said, you met, we met at, you know, Dancing with the Stars. And on my season was Sean Spicer, who worked in the White House. I'm not a Republican. Thought the man lied the entire time he was, you know, at, like as you know, um, the press secretary. But when I had the opportunity to be in his company, I was like, "Well, I'm going to use this." I got canceled. My kids got death threats. It was a mess. I'm talking about like horrible. But during that time, our trailers were right next to each other, and you know, his administration doesn't support um, LGBT people or women, single women adopting. And so I would bring my kids to, to the trailer all the time. Sean would talk to them. He would have conversations. He would say, you're such a great dad. His kids would meet my kids. His kids are younger, but they would play. And, and then one day I said, hey, Sean, you know, um, you know, I'm really happy that we're connecting as fathers. And he was like, me too. And I was like, you know, just to let you know, your administration actually would have denied me the opportunity to adopt because I'm a gay man. And he was like, yeah, that's horrible. And I'm like, yeah, you know, so maybe next time you're talking to your constituents, maybe you can share this experience you've had. Simple, not trying to like badger him over the head. Also, he's a vet. So I would have all of my vet friends visit set and come in before we go into set. Like you all know the process. Yeah. And majority of them were trans veterans. And so he would be meeting them. They would talk about their service. They would talk about the stuff. And then I'd be like, Oh, by the way, um, my friends who served that you loved, they're all trans. And he'd be like, what? And I'd be like, yeah. And I'd be like, I love that you all connected, you know, and that you would love to serve with them because you said you would love to have served with them and you appreciate their, you know, what the work they've done. And I'm like, could you pass that on next time? Because now you've, you've experienced these people and you had a different point of view before you knew they were trans. So does it really matter? And it's like, those are the type of things you have to do, but you can't do them if you don't get next to each other. I'm, I'm with you hundred percent. I think to, to, for him to be able to see and create that connection, it just, it makes him start an internal dialogue. Yeah. Your yeah. interaction or interactions with Sean, you, you know, it's so much more valuable than, than an angry tweet, you know, telling someone to do something because it's, it's literally embedded in his heart and it's not just a memo. It's not just, you know, something that is fighting against who he is because yeah. he has come to learn that you guys are more, we are all more the same than, than different. Agreed. And I'm not saying I changed his heart or minds. I mean, he could still be out there doing like craziness, but I was like, this is the only chance I'm going to get. So let yeah. me try. And that's what I think is missing. Thanks for letting me be on my soapbox. Cause I just hey. went on like two major soapboxes. But I used <laughs> no, I, I, I'm like, I love it. down with the man, but thanks. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me when you were growing up, you, you have three older sisters. Three older sisters. So you're the baby. I'm the baby of the family too. That's like yeah. my my younger brother. So yeah. in my family, it's it's four girls and my brother's the youngest. 
Yeah. The babies are the best, by the way. Just, you know. Yeah, sorry. I'm not going to argue with that. Cool. Babies yeah. are, are the best. But how, how was your dynamic with your siblings? I didn't hang out. They all, we hung out because they had to take care of me. I was the one that always had to get passed around and get taken care of. So <laughs> they all, <laughs> so I guess we hung out. They wouldn't call it that. They wouldn't call it that, yeah. <laughs> um, but now that we're older, we're like thick as thieves. Because I'm, I, you know, our, our father's still alive. But um I've stepped in for the past 10 years, especially when I became a father, became sort of like the um, patriarch of the family. So like all holidays are at my house. You know, everyone comes. I do a plan, a family trip. So now we hang out all the time. We talk all the time. And I, I, I just, family is the most important thing to me. You know, you realize as you get older, like, yeah, going out is fun. But like, yeah. I'm telling you, I will take, and I'm gonna sound like an old guy now and I turned 40 in November, but like, I would take a day in the house with my fiance and my kids stopping by and then some family coming over and we're cooking and eating and then going to sleep over a club any freaking oh, yeah. day. 100% same with us. And there's a difference. We love to go out and dance uh, from time to time, but there's a difference when of doing that and being like yeah. the creepy old guy at the club. <laughs> Like uh, I, I'm glad that I'm glad that Linda and I are together because I have no desire to ever be that person. You can be the creepy old guy in the living just room just with Linda. Oh, so, that's so sweet. Speaking of family, you have a whole other family with with Queer Eye, and and I want to hear a little bit of of how you initially got pulled into the the group there, and and what that experience has been like for you. It's great, you know. It's 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 you're managing four different other personalities, and um, we all have the same goal, which is really nice. But, you know, there's times that they get on my nerves and there's times that they don't, you know. Um, and I think also just naturally you gravitate to people who are similar to you. Um, so we all love each other. We all work really well together. But like um, Bobby and Tan, I gravitate to more. Um, and this is not shady like with Anthony or Jonathan or anything. But um, Jonathan is the youngest out of us and I'm the oldest. So like there's gaps in even our conversations. You know, like he's always on his phone where me... I will put my phone down when we go to set and forget about it for, you know, six, seven hours and then be like, oh, where's my phone? And it's because I didn't grow up in an age where like checking my phone was often, you know, and like, I, I don't feel like I have to post every single thing. And so um, Bobby's the second youngest and then Tan, culturally, we have similar experiences. So it's great to have them. I mean, it's just, it's good. You know, it's like, it's, you can't beat having people you like that you get to go to work with. I mean, it's just the yeah. best thing. Like, you get to go to work with your brother. And I'm sure like some days you're like, you get on my goddamn nerves. And other days you're like, this is awesome, <laughs> this is great. you know? Yeah. Oh, and yeah. so it's, it's that same experience. How did Queer Eye come around for you? Did, was it, uh, you heard a, a posting about it or was that, did somebody uh, recruit you and pitch the show, uh, the revamp the show with you or... No. So I had left social work, social services four years earlier, five years earlier, four years earlier um, to like start this journey of being a host because that was my dream. And um, I decided like better now than ever to pursue this dream. And so I had made some success. I was like working for Oprah Winfrey Network for a digital show. Then I worked for HuffPost Live and that was a thing as an on-air talent and host. And then I had that MTV show I hosted, but none of them were really popping off. I still, you know, was like making bills just enough, you know? And then um, the MTV show had finished and I was um, in bed watching um, Watch What Happens Live and Carson Kressley was on and he said they were bringing back Queer Eye. And I called my agent the next morning and was like, oh, I got to get on that show. And he was like, they're done with the casting. Sorry, you were shooting your show so we couldn't put you out for it. And I literally said, I'm not taking no for an answer. Someone needs to see me, please. And not in an asshole way, just sort of like in a, they have to be able to see me. They have to be able to see me. And he called in a favor to the head of casting to say, can you see my client? They hadn't started the chemistry test yet. They had only done the major casting, but they were dwindling it down like the next week to the final 60 to bring for the chemistry test. Mm. And she said, we'll give him a shot to get on Skype and sell himself. And if he sells himself, we'll sneak him in. Um, but he has 30 minutes. And I was like, that's all I need. <laughs> I got this. Oh and um, I watched hours upon hours of the original show to figure out where I would fit in because they didn't 
say you could, I could have picked any category. I could have been like, I'm the cook, I'm whatever. I could have been like, whatever. So they didn't say you have to audition for mm. culture. You came, I came on the call and told them what category I fit in. And I was like, um, well, clearly I don't know hammer shit. So I can't be the designer. <laughs> I can't, I burn everything I cook. So that's done. I was like, I'm kind of fashionable, but I was like, my fashion is not for everybody. So I don't know if that works. And then I was like, I'm bald. So that's not going to happen. So culture was the immediate thing, but I was like, I don't know about art. So I do, but I don't. And so I was like, well, what do I know about? I was like, I know about people's feelings. And so I was like, well, that's missing in this show. And so I pitched in that 30 minutes, what I thought was missing and how I could feel like it could change. And um, they liked it. And they were like, great, we'll bring you in. And when we went to the casting, that chemistry test, there was only one other guy who was talking about culture as feelings. Everybody else owned art galleries, was on Broadway. And I was like, oh, well, great. I've cleared out all of you yahoos because I'm not competing with you all because you're different. I'm different from you. And then I looked at the other guy and I was like, I was like, um, okay, you're not, you're single and you don't have any kids and that's all these other guys. And so I played up being a dad and being uh, immigrant parents and I was like, I'm just going to play up everything you're not. So that way they have a clear distinction of like, okay, these two people are talking about feelings, but which one do we want? And it worked because literally they were like, we needed a parent and you were the only parent in the room. And so the fact that you were so open and talking about your kids, it allowed us to immediately see that you were a clearer choice in it. And so I always tell people, first of all, don't be afraid of no's um, when people are, when it comes to going after your dreams and your career, Mm -hmm. because if you push and try to, you know, have faith, you'll find an opportunity. And then secondly, don't hide any parts of your identity because if I would have went in that room thinking like, Ooh, okay, let me be like them. Mm -hmm. I would have probably not got the job, but because I was like, Oh, you're single. I'm not. I'm going to talk about me not being single because then it shows I'm different. And, yeah. you know, I mean, hey, with that's uh, so brilliant. I, I just want to like it is brilliant. Yeah. I will clap on that, too. That's it. People have a fear of being themselves because, like, you know, society tells you who you are is wrong. And so it's like, hide this part of your identity, hide this struggle, you know, seem like everything's good. And I'm like, nope. That's why I don't have, you know, as you got on this interview, you were like, well, what can we talk about? And I was like, anything. Because I've had great days. I've also had train wrecks when I was doing eight balls of cocaine, you know, for a year and a half up and down Hollywood Boulevard and West Hollywood thinking like, oh my gosh, I'm living the Hollywood life. So then getting sober, like, I, you know, that having a baby mama to be in gay. I mean, like, I'm like, I got to share it because all of these things make me me and they make me unique from someone else. And I think that's part of my success of why in four and a half years, five years, my career just keeps climbing because I'm not hiding any part of myself. Yeah, and I think people learning and growing. feel very comfortable around me because they're like, oh, we don't have to figure out who this guy is. He's kind of told us already. So yeah. <laughs> great. Yeah. Boom. I'd love to hear just from you with all of your wisdom and all of your worldly experience. What is some great advice that you can pass on to our listeners just about in life, how to really live your best life, how to embrace life and also uh, accepting other people into your life? Yeah, so I say the biggest thing that I would probably want to leave people with is um, comparison is the thief of joy. And I think people need to understand it's important as you go through life, as you matriculate through life, not to compare yourself to other people or other people's experience. And um, I think it's so important um, for people to get that because we end up looking at what other people have and saying, well, why don't I have it? Why has this not happened to me? Why is that not my family? We fill in the blank. And it only serves to stop us from focusing on what's most important, which is the experiences that we have that we can use to create the life we want and deserve. And so to be able to check in with yourself more often of saying, I don't need to compare myself. Who I am as I am is perfect. I am perfectly designed as I am. I'm getting the lessons that I need. And anything that I don't know, I could ask for help or I can, I have the resources to learn. And I think that's a really big thing because comparison, especially in the digital age, um, people compare themselves so often, and that's why we see so people feel so isolated, alone, and sad. Don't compare yourself, people. It's only stealing your joy. Love who you are authentically because who you are is perfect just as you are. I love it. Love it. 
Thank Absolutely. you so much. Thank you for that. Except Thank for when you have a twin and then everybody compares you to that twin. Uh, That's a whole other conversation. Or, or it's less of a comparison. They think you are just one person. So, uh, it sucks. Yeah. It sucks. Well, thank you so much for joining. I look forward to coming to one of the house parties when we're all back to our normal routine. Same. I can't wait to come to a game night. So just invite yeah, us over. Yeah. Sure. And remind me about the Houston Rockets because Daryl will definitely bring us in for a game. I'm down. Come say hi, Ian. Come say hi to my fiance. Yeah, I met him before. Hi, Ian. Oh, I didn't even talk about it. Hey, Ian, how are you? Hey, guys. Hey, good to see I gave him a haircut today. You oh, did? Looks good. Fourteen haircut. That looks good. I was like, you did a pretty good job. Yeah, it looks hey, good. I haven't I need, cut Drew's hair no, no, in so hasn't. long. Hold on. This is, it's Here, crazy. He'll mess it up. It's, oh, yeah. it's awful. But I'm, long, I man. want him to embrace it. I just want to see where it goes. I don't goes. look good. I have a, right here it parts. And so, because this, this kind of grows forward a bit. Yeah. And then it parts and the rest will kind of go back. And so I end up having like a super 70s mop. I love, right here. I love it. Well, thank you so much. We'll let you get on to your other chat. But thanks for joining. We'll talk to you soon. Love thank you. you all soon. Love, love you. you. All right. Love you. Bye. 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 Bye.